0: The tragic events that defined the life of Senator Edward M. Kennedy unfold in Lionsgate's riveting thriller, Chappaquiddick. The film features an all-star cast that includes Jason Clarke, Kate Mara, Ed Helms, and Academy Award nominee Bruce Stern. Variety calls it exactly what you want it to be. Tense, scrupulous, absorbingly precise. Get it on digital July 3rd and on Blu-ray combo pack July 10th previously on Cover Up.
1: I think Nixon was worried about everybody as a political opponent. I I think he had a draw full of uh, opposition research on... On everybody, Republicans, Democrats, uh, uh, maybe his in-laws. The fact that there was foam in the, at the mouth, which wouldn't indicate asphyxiation, lack of oxygen rather than, than drowning, the covering up of evidence. Uh, there was no autopsy, which in itself was remarkable.
2: Yes, I was very sad about the assassinations. Who wouldn't be? But uh, that's a separate story and uh, shouldn't be allowed to influence anything else. And it did.
3: He was very close to her. And they had an affair that lasted about 12 years she was his, I think, center of his emotional life in many
4: ways.
5: He, he called me around 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, he told me what happened and uh, that he desperately tried
2: to, to save her. He was uh, uh, absolutely horrified and, uh, and totally confused and thinking he has, you know, uh, already done whatever.
1: I think that my dad felt strongly that there was a, a a very good or solid chance that Kennedy was not in the car at the time it went over the bridge, that he was either able to jump out uh, or otherwise, somehow leave that car before it went off of, you know,
3: off of really, I was going to say, the rail. doesn't
1: make sense, so much of it, don't that it must be cover-up, because it might have been to uh, Senator Kennedy's advantage to have the autopsy. Uh, because human nature being what it is, there is a suspicion, well, there are other reasons somebody didn't want an autopsy.
5: I'm Liz McNeil, and this is Cover-Up. On my first trip to Chappaquiddick, as one of the locals drove me around the island, I was told, you can't imagine how afraid people were back then, and how much power the family had. Even after all these years, to hear that about the Kennedys is unnerving.
6: Right from the beginning, I felt like a connection with Mary Jo, partly because uh, she would have turned 29, and I had just turned 29, and I'm going... Here's this young person with a whole life ahead of her, and it seems like, as things progressed, that she was forgotten. Everything was about Ted Kennedy. Everything was about protecting his political career, and Mary Jo was forgotten all the way along, and, uh, and still, to this day, uh, it, it seems that way.
5: That's Les Leland. In 1969, he was the grand jury foreman of Dukes County, which encompasses Martha's Vineyard. And it was Leland who made the last official attempt to get to the truth of what happened the night Mary Jo Kopechny died. Leland was threatened and intimidated not to go through with it. The grand jury, whose job is to determine the existence of a crime, was not allowed to question any witnesses who were at the party, and they were rendered powerless. Nearly 50 years later, Les is still angry about that.
6: What happened to me was tampering, and it was intimidation, and the grand jury was not able to do its job.
5: But before the grand jury, there had been an inquest to investigate the circumstances surrounding Mary Jo's death. It began in January 1970, six months after the accident, and it was the only time those who attended the reunion party would be compelled to testify. And it is the only official record we have of what happened that night. District Attorney Edmund Denise had called the inquest to put to rest all the rumors and speculations about the accident. And as the first step, he sought to have Mary Jo's body exhumed for an autopsy. Because without an autopsy, the case would never be closed. And just to backtrack, Mary Jo's body was flown off the island on Sunday, July 20th after her death certificate had been signed by the assistant medical examiner. He had ruled she had drowned, and an autopsy was unnecessary. The day before, just a few hours after Mary Jo's body had been recovered, Ted Kennedy's legislative aide, Dunn Gifford, had arrived at the undertaker's office to help, he said. It was his responsibility to get the body off the island, and quickly. And the next day, he accompanied her body on a plane to Pennsylvania, where Mary Joe was to be buried. Several people I've interviewed have told me in later years, Gifford would sometimes refer to himself as the body snatcher. At first, Mary Jo's parents, Gwen and Joe Kopechny, were under the impression that an autopsy had already been performed. The family was represented by Joe Flanagan, an attorney whom Gwen said was recommended by one of Ted Kennedy's associates. Here's Georgetta Patowski, Mary Jo's cousin.
2: They thought one had been performed before she came down to Pennsylvania. They thought there had been something done before they got her body. All, everything was taken care of, they were told. All, don't worry about anything, everything was taken care of. So they thought that had happened and then they just went on with the funeral. There was this cocoon around them. They were only told what they needed to be told so that they could be cooperative.
5: And they didn't understand an autopsy would answer when and exactly how she died. They only thought it was to determine if she was pregnant or a virgin.
2: Gwen and Joe were adamant against the exhumation. Although in later years, Gwen said it was the biggest mistake they ever made. They should have had the exhumation. But they were offended that people, they felt that people wanted to know if Mary Jo was pregnant. And they weren't going to give them that. Gwen said she could not go back to the cemetery if her body had been disturbed. That was, but she regretted that later.
5: The exhumation hearing began on October 20th, 1969, in Pennsylvania's Luzerne County, where Mary Jo was buried.
4: My name is Cyril H. Wecht, MD, JD. I am a forensic pathologist and medical legal consultant. I uh, became involved in the matter of Mary Jo Kopechny, When I received a call from District Attorney Edmund Denise, he asked me what could be found uh, now that the body had been embalmed and buried. I explained to him uh, from the standpoint of uh, a forensic pathologist, medical examiner, coroner, that drowning is an exclusionary diagnosis at best. Uh, Anyway, when you have a fresh body that has not been embalmed and has not been buried, what you do is you rule out Other things. So uh, here, I knew a little bit from what I read, some more about what he told me about this uh, scenario with the car found in a pond, and so on and so forth. Um, And I, frankly, was just amazed and extremely puzzled that no autopsy had been done. So I told Mr. Denise that what you do is you rule out things, and toxicology could still be done, uh, maybe, uh, although with embalming, uh, not very likely, but uh, you could try to see... uh, with uh, vitreous fluid, that's fluid behind the eye, spinal fluid, there's somewhat, somewhat sequestered uh, blood, bowel, and urine would be of no valid toxicological value because of the embalming. But the important thing would be to ascertain that this was indeed a drowning case for whatever that would mean.
5: Wet, who would later find fame consulting and commenting on many celebrity deaths, including Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe, RFK and JFK, argued in favor of an autopsy. And by the way, he did not agree with the Warren Commission and the single-bullet theory regarding JFK's death. Arguing against the autopsy and representing Mary Jo's parents was forensic pathologist Werner Spitz. He would also later consult on many well-known deaths, from John Benet Ramsey to JFK, although he did agree with the Warren Commission that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone. But he also said they had botched JFK's autopsy.
7: I was I an was assistant medical examiner in, for the state of Maryland. I uh, uh, realized very quickly when I saw the pictures what the circumstances was in more detail uh, that this was a uh, drowning case.
5: On the morning Mary Jo's body was found, the chief medical examiner was on vacation. So his assistant, Dr. Donald Mills, performed a 15-minute external examination in which Mary Jo remained fully clothed, an exam that Weck believes was insufficient because of what it could miss.
4: He drew blood, which doesn't tell you anything about drowning, so he basically did nothing. I mean, he could have said, then he can say today uh, that there was no evidence externally of trauma, but that doesn't mean anything. (laughs) You can have cases with significant skull fractures uh, that don't have any external manifestations, not even a bruise on the scalp. Uh, You can have significant injuries to uh, organs and body tissues in the thoracic and abdominal cavities without any external evidence of such injuries. So uh, you can't tell. What did he do? He did nothing other than to look at the body. The autopsy performed uh, three, four months later would have revealed what would have been demonstrated had an autopsy been done, whether or not there was any evidence of trauma whether there was some other cause of death did she suffer any blunt force injuries prior to or in the accident that might have been responsible for her death
5: John Ferrar the diver who pulled Mary Joe's body out of the car had said she was found in a consciously assumed position and Cyril Wecht agrees that meant she was struggling for her final breaths.
4: Insofar as the position of the body and what that tells us, I, what it suggests to me from a pathological medical standpoint is that she had not been rendered unconscious, that um, she was conscious and she knew what she had to do to try to survive, namely uh, to uh, keep her head as close uh, to what little bit of Air remained above water, and then finally, of course, uh, the water just uh, flowed in and went uh, to cover her face and head.
5: Even Werner Spitz, who argued against the autopsy, agreed that she didn't die instantly, although he does not believe she was alive for more than a few minutes in the car.
7: A person that drowns does not drown instantaneously. It's a fight. It's a fight to not inhale. Especially a young woman like she, at that age, can hold their breath for even over a minute. And they, with the hope that maybe something will happen and someone will remove her from the vehicle. So she knew exactly that she's drowning. If she has the head above the water, after she inhaled water, she she will delay the drowning process until either the air pocket fills with water or she goes down because she cannot indefinitely breathe the air out of the air pocket. The air pocket, she will be filled with carbon dioxide eventually because she will breathe out. There's no new air coming in. So she will then gradually lose consciousness and inhale the water and drown.
5: It's wrenching to think of Mary Jo struggling for her last breath and to imagine her death in this way. I can't help but think how difficult this will be for her cousin Georgetta and the rest of Mary Jo's family and friends to hear. But it's an essential part of the record. One of the things that was wrong from the outset was that no one ever thought about Mary Jo. And in order to understand what happened to her, we have to understand how she died. Spitz testified there was a large amount of pink foam coming out of Mary Jo's nose and mouth, an observation based on the photos taken that morning of her body at the accident site. The foam is formed by protein from the rupture of fine blood vessels in the lungs, combined with water that is being inhaled, and the breathing action, which whips it into a foam. Here's how Spitz explains it.
7: You cannot determine very much as far as drowning is concerned, just from the external examination. But what you can do, if you have the opportunity of um, seeing that event, that foam in large, large quantities, especially mixed with blood, when that comes out in large quantities from a person removed from a body of water, that tells you that they inhaled water. And inhalation of water, is drowning. It's another word for drowning.
5: To make things more complicated, were the blood stains, washed-out reddish-brown stains on the back of both sleeves and the collar of Mary Joe's blouse that indicated the presence of residual blood traces. So were the blood stains on her blouse caused by the blood foam that came out of her nose and mouth? Both Wecht and Spitz thought so. But without an autopsy, her family has always wondered if there was another reason. Here's Werner Spitz.
7: This is not blood staining. This is blood soaking. This was pink water that stained the shirt pink, intensely pink, so that it wasn't here and there a few little droplets. It was a soaking of the shirt. The water mixed with blood is pink or sort of um, pinkish red. And the blood comes from torn air sacs from the increased pressure inside the lungs from the accumulation of large amounts of water. And the pressure within the lung is from both the large amount of water that is in the lung and trying to breathe. But trying to breathe, the word trying implies consciousness, and I'm trying to avoid that. I don't know whether she was conscious or not.
5: On December 1st, 1969, Judge Bernard Brominski, taking the Kopechny's wishes into account, barred the exhumation of Mary Jo's body, citing no evidence that she had died by any other reason than drowning. The bloodstains, he wrote, had been wholly consistent, with death by drowning. Less than two years later, on November 16, 1971, two state police investigators burned Mary Jo's clothing in the basement of the Barnstable, Massachusetts courthouse, following the wishes of Mary Jo's parents that her clothing be destroyed. To this day, Wecht is shocked there was no autopsy.
4: In this case... The case was botched by virtue of the fact that uh, an autopsy was not done. If you put that to 100 lay coroners or 100 forensic pathologists, medical examiners, I would be willing to give a hundred to one odds that there would be not one person who would say that an autopsy was not necessary. I mean, you. so you have a body floating, um, not even identified at that time. Nobody has witnessed the accident. Uh, the person who says that he was in the car uh, tells you this uh, 10, 12 hours later doesn't remember exactly what happened except that they uh, went off, that he was dazed or whatever, that he tried to uh, extricate the other person after uh, himself getting out of the car and so on and so forth, Um, put all of those facts together and present that as a scenario at a uh, a training program, a conference of coroners or medical examiners. And uh, every, every one of them would, I'm certain, say that, of course, you want to do an autopsy.
5: After the exhumation was denied, Mary Jo's parents spoke to the press.
1: What does this decision mean to you, Mr. And Mrs.
5: This means that I'll come up here very, very often to visit my
0: daughter. I couldn't have faced coming back and going up to the cemetery, and this is—I honestly mean this—I could never have gone up to that cemetery again if I known it had been disturbed. I'll be back,
1: Mr. Kibaknia. Uh, do you feel now that this ruling justifies the? statement made by senator kennedy regarding the
6: accident well i feel our position has been vindicated and uh i
1: feel that dr mills examination now is to me has always did prove conclusive are you satisfied with the senator's explanation well uh, yes Mrs. yes
5: Afterwards, Senator Kennedy phoned Mary Jo's parents, expressing his support of the ruling and telling the local press, The decision increases their peace of mind, and I'm grateful for that. On January 5th, 1970, the official inquest began in Edgartown, Massachusetts, conducted by Judge James Boyle. The purpose, the DA said, was to decide whether or not a crime had been committed, and if there were grounds for a criminal proceeding against Ted Kennedy. Originally, it was to be open to the press, but Ted's lawyers argued that the presence of media could taint the proceedings, and so they were barred. And that wasn't the only unusual occurrence. Beforehand, a Massachusetts state police investigator, Bernie Flynn, had reached out to Kennedy's camp to tell them what evidence the DA had against Ted. According to author Leo Damore, who interviewed Flynn for his book, Senatorial Privilege, Flynn felt sorry for the Kennedy family after all they had gone through and wanted to help Ted. So he met Ted's brother-in-law, Stephen Smith, the family fixer who Ted was trying to reach the morning after the accident, and another lawyer in a secret meeting at a Boston airport and told them the only thing they had to worry about was Huck Look, the deputy sheriff who had seen Ted's car 90 minutes after Ted said the accident occurred. Flynn wanted Ted's lawyers to be prepared, and know what to expect.
0: Hi, this is Christina, one of the producers on Cover Up. If you've listened to the podcast until this point, you're familiar with the 1969 scandal involving Ted Kennedy. Now you can see it unfold in the Lionsgate thriller Chappaquiddick. It's a suspenseful historical film that examines the infamous death of Mary Jo Kopechny, the young campaign worker who drowned after the senator drove his car off a bridge on the tiny island off Martha's Vineyard, and the moral and legal complexities that play out over the following week. In our podcast, you've heard some of the voices of the story's key players. In Chappaquiddick, you can see them come to life on screen, like the diver John Ferrar and police chief Jim Arena. Jason Clarke stars in the film and delivers a spot-on portrayal of the famous Kennedy brother. He's particularly fantastic in the TV speech scene. Kate Mara, Ed Helms, and Bruce Stern also round out the cast. Get it on digital July 3rd and on Blu-ray Combo Pack July 10th. For more information, visit ownchepaquitic.com.
5: The inquest, over 750 pages, is an incomplete roadmap to what happened that night. Among the revelations that Ted Kennedy did not know that Ray LaRosa, one of the party guests, was an experienced skin diver. Someone who may have been able to save Mary Jo had he been called in time. Yet another tragic what if. Ted had previously said he'd suffered from shock and a cerebral concussion following the accident. And so during the inquest, the DA asked him if he had been fully aware of what happened afterwards. He testified. He testified. I was fully aware that I was doing everything that I possibly could to get the girl out of the car and that my head was throbbing and my neck was aching and I was breathless and at the time hopelessly exhausted. The Kennedy family physician, Dr. Robert Watt, submitted an affidavit that he had diagnosed Ted with a concussion. He said Ted had suffered from retrograde amnesia, which resulted in memory loss and confused behavior. Dr. Watt had prescribed sedatives to Ted to relieve the headache. And when the press revealed sedatives are not advised in concussion cases, it created further doubt in the veracity of Ted's account. Rosemary Keo, the woman whose purse was left in the car, testified that the reason her purse was in the car was because she had taken an earlier trip around 9.30 p.m. into Edgartown with fellow party guest Charlie Treader to pick up a transistor radio for the party. All of the Boiler Room girls testified that Ted and Mary Jo had left the party around 11.15 or 11.30 p.m. The accounts were sometimes confusing. Charlie Treader testified he took two walks with Rosemary Keogh, the first around 11.30 p.m. on Chappaquiddick Road towards the Tee in the Road that leads to the Dyke Bridge. They returned to the cottage about 30 to 40 minutes later, which would have been around midnight. But if the accident occurred shortly after 11.15 and Ted had walked back to the cottage to seek help as he testified, then he would have seen Charlie and Rosemary on the two-lane road that led to the cottage. But that discrepancy went unnoticed by the DA. One of the boiler room girls, Mary Ellen Lyons, said when Joe Gargan and Paul Markham, who had attempted to save Mary Jo, returned to the cottage around 2 a.m., Gargan told her Mary Jo was back at the Katama Shores Motel, and that she had taken the last ferry. When asked if she found it odd that Mary Jo returned to her hotel and Ted swam across the channel, Mary Ellen testified, "'It was a very confused thing. It wasn't that somebody came in and came back and everybody was waiting and there was a story. It was, as I say, some of the people had gone to bed. We were sitting there waiting, as I said, speculating again about the cars being stuck in the sand, and then they came back. We just said, you know, where have you been?' What is going on? What is happening? What is the story? And it was not in any chronological order. It was just that everything was fine and they had been swimming and this and that and so forth. The inquest was the only time the Bore the girls talked about that night in detail. Little is known about the five women. They are very private. Like Mary Jo, they were all devoted to Bobby Kennedy, and they all became very accomplished in their careers. Many people have spoken about them during the course of my research, but few know anything about them. Here's a very brief overview of the women who are all now in their early to mid 70s Susan Tannenbaum. After RFK's assassination, Susan went to work for a New York congressman. She married a Washington lawyer and had two children, and became a lobbyist for the nonprofit Common Cause, focusing on environmental issues. Nancy Lyons, who had been one of Mary Jo's Washington, D.C. roommates, continued working in Ted's Senate office after Chappaquiddick. She then worked in New York City for a research and marketing firm, and then as assistant commissioner for drug-free rehabilitation, and later became an attorney in Boston. Her sister, Mary Ellen Lyons, also attended law school and became a Boston-based lawyer. Rosemary Keogh, known by her nickname Cricket, married her lawyer Paul Redman, He was a classmate of Ted's at Harvard and had represented all five women during the inquest. He's now deceased. She later attended Boston University Law School and became a lawyer as well. Esther Newberg became a powerful New York City literary agent. She is executive vice president at the ICM Talent Agency. She represents many best-selling authors, including Tom Hanks, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Caroline Kennedy Schlossberg the surviving daughter of JFK and Jackie Kennedy. The women's remarks have been few over the years. Five years after the accident, in October of 1974, Rosemary Keogh told the Boston Globe, As far as I'm concerned, there's only one person who really knows what happened from the beginning of the incident to the end, and that's Ted Kennedy. But back to the inquest. When John Farrar, the diver who recovered Mary Jo's body, was on the witness stand... He recalls that Judge Boyle blocked him from answering certain questions.
1: Yes, I was cut off in the inquest because Boyle did not want to hear anything from me about the fact that she breathed, even though I had absolute proof that she breathed underwater by her positively void and the blood froth. he didn't want to hear it. I did use the word consciously assumed position. And at that point, he cut off all testimony. And after I had used that term, he said to his court recorder, he said, all right, I would like you to tear up that last piece of testimony that you have recorded. And so she cut it out of the strip that comes off the back of the recorder. She cut it off and let it drop to the floor. And he said, now bring it up here. So she got up and brought the the strip of paper up to him, and he sat there tearing it into small pieces, little tiny pieces, so that it could not be read, and said, go ahead with your statement, but we will not talk about the fact that she may have lived for any period of time. Well, at that point, I could see that somebody had, quote, gotten to boil, and That was very obvious to me when I got back to work because the lady who worked for me and did the art department of my business used to be a secretary for Judge Boyle. And she told me, she said, you would not believe the amount of pressure that was brought to bear on Judge Boyle by the officials of the court from Boston. He said the phone rang again and again and again, telling him how he was going to run that inquest. That's normally up to the judge running the inquest. But Boston virtually ran that inquest from Boston using the telephone.
5: And by Boston, Farrar meant the Kennedy political machine with all of its influence. Once the inquest was complete, Judge Boyle concluded that Kennedy and Kopechny did not intend to drive to the ferry slip and his turn onto Dyke Road had been intentional. And he added, there is probable cause to believe that Edward M. Kennedy operated his motor vehicle negligently and that such operation appears to have contributed to the death of Mary Jo Kopechny. Judge Boyle, however, did not initiate criminal proceedings. And two days after he submitted his report... He retired. Nor did the DA, Edmund Denise, take any further action based on the evidence in the inquest. But years later, he told author Leo Damore, there's no question in my mind that the grand jury would have indicted Ted Kennedy for involuntary manslaughter if I had given them the case. Why hadn't he given them the case? The press claimed he'd gone too easy on Ted. And Denise would lose his bid for re-election in the following year, in part because of that very reason. It all seemed another example of public officials not following the normal course, and it ended just as it had begun, in mystery, with misleading statements, withheld information, and the senator's testimony, which seemed as if the priority was to avoid responsibility for Mary Joe's death. And so the case was closed, but not for Les Leland, the 29-year-old pharmacist and the grand jury foreman, a man whose profession depended on his attention to detail. On March 17, 1970, he wrote a letter to the Chief Justice of the Superior Court for permission to reconvene the grand jury in a special session. There had been a whitewash, a cover-up, and things had been swept under the rug, he wrote. And the grand jury had a right to investigate any matter it wanted to, and question anyone they wished. Soon after, Leland said he got a call from Edgartown Police Chief Jim Arena with a request to meet. The special prosecutor for Dukes County, Walter Steele, was also there.
6: The other incident that took place was what I call a clandestine meeting. Jim Arena called me uh, at the drugstore and wanted to meet with me to discuss the uh, situation, the accident, as he called it. it was, and, uh, and we were feeling pressure. I was feeling pressure as former of the grand jury from the media and everybody. What are you going to do? What's going on? Are you going to call for an investigation? And I had done some research and talked with the attorney general to find out what my responsibilities were. I talked to the district attorney to find out what my responsibilities were. And I said, fine. Why don't you come over, come over to the drugstore, and we can meet up in the back room and talk. And he goes, oh no. He said, uh, there's, you know, there's too many, you know, cameras around and and reporters. I said, okay. I said, how about uh, I'll come down to Agatown, I'll meet you at the police station. and go talk in your office. And he goes, oh no, can't. We can't do it there. There's, I, I got cameras in the, in the. Building and all around. We we can't meet there. He says, uh, I'll meet you up at the blinking light. There's one light on the island that's up at this four way intersection. And he said, I'll meet you there and I'll be in an unmarked car. And so I drove there and met him. And when I drove up, I saw this car, and it was just a regular car. And the passenger door opens, a gentleman gets out. Motions when I get out of my car, motions for me to come over, and he opens the back door. and I am i don't know this guy, I don't know who it is. I've Jim Arena, I knew I'd met him a couple of times, and this was not Jim Arena, so t- kind of a tall dude. And uh, so he opens the back door. I get in, and I was a little nervous. I, I'm, what's going on? It's kind of weird. And so I get in the car, he closes the door, and he gets in the Passman's aside, Jim Arena is behind the wheel, and he turns and says, Hi Les, how are you doing? This is great. And he said, "This I want you to meet Walter Steele. And Walter Steele was, the county commissioners had appointed him as a special district attorney's assistant uh, for the island to uh, work with the attorney general's office and so forth, the district attorney's office. So Walter Steele is in the passenger seat and the chief is driving, and we take off, and and the whole conversation boiled around that there's no absolutely no reason for the grand jury to get involved in this accident. That it was just a simple accident. Unfortunately, a uh, young lady died, but Ted Kennedy uh, got out all right. But it was just it's not it's not
5: a big deal. But Jim Arena denies the meeting ever happened.
3: I had never done that. No, I never heard, I never said that at all. I never said that. And he said that I had met him at nighttime in an unmarked cruiser. And uh, number one, I didn't have any unmarked cruisers. And number two, Walter Steele and I wouldn't have met him. And, uh, you know, because the grand jury was called well after the... uh, The inquest and everything else, well, I know damn well I didn't go out at night to talk to Leslie Leland about calling the grand jury or anything else. That's one thing I have positive recollection of.
5: And this is why it is so difficult to figure out the truth. Here is a direct contradiction of a crucial fact. They're both credible witnesses. You wouldn't forget something like this. And you don't make something like this up knowing the guy who was in the car with you is still alive. It was another instance of who to believe, and another example of what it's like to report this story.
0: If you didn't get a chance to catch Chappaquiddick when it was in theaters, you can now do it in the comfort of your own home. It's a riveting thriller that focuses on Ted Kennedy's 1969 car accident that left a young campaign worker, Mary Jo Kopechny, to die. The film features an all-star cast that includes Jason Clarke, Kate Mara, Ed Helms, and Academy Award nominee Bruce Stern. Earlier this year, Liz and I had the opportunity to visit Chappaquiddick to see the island for ourselves. I was most interested to see the tea in the road and the conditions of Dyke Road, and once I saw it, I suddenly had a much better understanding of who was telling the truth. And now, thanks to the movie Chappaquiddick, you can see it for yourself. The film actually shot on Martha's Vineyard for a few days, and when you watch it, you'll notice that scenes involving the ferry or the path Ted drives between the cottage and the bridge are actually the real locations. The rest of the movie shot outside of Boston and in Mexico. For those who have seen Chappaquiddick, the home release has some exclusive special features you're going to want to check out. Get it on digital July 3rd and on Blu-ray combo pack July 10th. For more information, go to ownchappaquiddick.com.
5: The grand jury convened on April 6th, 1970. Soon after, Leland was threatened and given round-the-clock police protection.
6: I wanted to speak up and talk but did not dare because my life had been threatened. My family had been threatened in business. I had received death threats and so forth and harm to my children. And back then, you know, the Kennedy machine, it was the biggest political machine going. I got the letters and, uh, and then ended up having state police uh, 24 hours a day for a couple of months until we were reconvened one of the uh, phone call threats that I'd received I received a couple uh, was a man that <clears throat> was very calm and seemed collected and just carefully uh, told me to to walk away to you know forget going forward with a grand jury, otherwise uh, you know your your life uh, is in jeopardy. And your family is in could be in trouble also. And I had another similar call, and uh, again the same type of a, a a threat being made against the business, and uh, and it unravelled me to no end. I wasn't frightened at all until I had received those calls, and then it really Set me back and made me, I mean, nervous is maybe an understatement. You know, the concern was for my family. I was really, really upset and nervous about that.
5: Here, he describes the first day of the grand jury proceedings, a farce, as he later described it.
6: The pressure uh, was put on me as foreman by the district attorney when he met me at the uh, top of the courthouse steps and when I had reconvened the grand jury for the final time, he said he had a message from judge from the judge. And I asked him what that was. And he said that the judge is seriously considering holding me in contempt.
5: And I mean, my
6: jaw fell open and I go, what, what for what? And, uh, That's when the DA, Denise, said that uh, they feel I've been talking too much to the press and, you know, to the news media, TV, the radio and all that. And then he tells me to get inside. And from then on, uh, inside and uh, we were told that basically we could not call for witnesses, anyone who had testified at the inquest. So that limited what the grand jury could do, and I thought the grand jury was supposed to be able to subpoena anyone that they wanted to come in and to testify if they thought they had some information, And uh, but we were told we could not do that. In the grand jury room, when I asked to uh, the first order of business, we wanted to subpoena you know, Kennedy and Geigen and so forth. And the district attorney said right away, he said, you heard the judge. She said, you can't call them as uh, to uh, give testimony.
5: The decision rendered the grand jury completely powerless. In the end, they only called four witnesses, none of whom played a significant role in what happened that night. But one, Benjamin Hall, described a strange encounter his wife had had in the early morning hours of July 19th. Back then, Hall lived close to the Shiretown Inn, where Ted had spent the night.
8: She was on Simpson's Lane, and she told me all this afterward, but she saw a strapping young man coming up the street, and uh, he looked at her, and she looked at him, and he kind of jumped, and uh, jumped through a gate, which is not there anymore, but through a gate into the backyard of a local inn, and... uh, you know, acted very suspiciously, and so she was frightened. So basically, anything that we that my wife may have said would would just corroborate what what Ted Kennedy had said about swimming across, and and uh, you know, so he would have been you know, and and he appeared approximately the, the time, and uh, you know, just, as I say, it, it just corroborated what he had what he had to say for himself. Well, of course, it probably was him. It probably was him. I shouldn't have been so frightened, but he acted so frightened, you know, you know that
1: she was frightened.
5: What did it mean? His story may have corroborated Ted's story that he had walked back to the hotel a little before 2 a.m. after he swam across the channel. But on the other hand, it may not have been Ted. Locals say there was fear about speaking out back then. John Album, the tow truck driver we heard from in the first episode, who pulled Kennedy's car out of the water, had a frightening experience in the days following the accident.
3: There were a couple of people who claimed that they worked for an engineering firm that the Kennedy family had hired to measure the tidal currents because they wanted to dispute what John Ferrar and I said about the the trunk being dry, and they wanted to try to prove that the water was too high for the car to be floating and those kinds of things. And these two guys came in the gas station one day and told me that they worked for whatever the engineering firm was that they had, and, but they were big, they weren't just two guys. I mean, I'm only five, six, so I'm not a big guy myself, but these guys were like bruisers, you know? And they kept backing me into a corner and, wanted, and kept saying, the trunk wasn't dry, it was full of water, wasn't it? And I said, no, it was dry. I've said that publicly, I've said it under oath, yeah, it's, it's dry. And they kept backing me into this, trying to back me into a corner. And I finally, my gas station was right next door to the county jail. So I finally got to a spot in, in our hedge where I knew there was a hole. And I ducked through the hole and ran to the back door of the county jail and knocked on the door and said, can I come in for a little while? I know you don't have many people ask for that, but this is something different. Can I come in? And they let me in and I hung out there until the guys left. They wanted me to change my theory or it changed what I'd said publicly.
5: John Ferrar, the diver who pulled Mary Jo's body out of the car and who was one of the most outspoken critics of Ted Kennedy, says he was also threatened.
1: We were um, very concerned. Number one, our phone was tapped. Uh, anytime we uh, picked the phone up, got a call, we could hear the hollow ring in it, which is someone who is tapping your phone. Um. We were threatened, called and threatened, uh, from what location, I know not, that they, someone was coming coming to get us with a shotgun. That Those were the exact words that were used. My wife was called and asked if she knew where her children were, that she better know exactly where they were every single minute because they are subject to being uh, taken.
5: Things got even stranger when he took a trip to Chicago for a radio show interview about Chappaquiddick.
1: We had asked the hotel where we were staying not to put our name on the roster as being present in the hotel. As it turned out, they had put us present in the hotel and our room was broken into that night. And the individual who was coming to get us got a gun inside, a pistol. I was armed. I slammed the door and caught his arm in the door, but he was able to get the pistol back out. We called the police and they came up and looked around. Of course, nobody was there by the time they got up there.
5: The overall atmosphere, one of threats and fear, strange occurrences in the middle of the night, Mary Joe's body being rushed off the island, a judge refusing to admit crucial evidence, has always been part of the story. And for these people, it still is. On the next episode of Cover Up... The
3: apparatus in Massachusetts is extraordinarily powerful. There is so much propaganda that emanates out of Mr. Kennedy's office that it virtually blankets... Out everything
2: else. I didn't really want to see what I saw, and I didn't know what it meant—the significance of it. All I knew that was that it didn't fit in with the the tale that was being told.
3: Leo knew that I had
1: access to the Kennedys, and I arranged for Leo to get money to Joe to get him out of a jam.
3: They thought he was poisoned, um, and he was getting more and more erratic and a little bit agitated. Wanted, I think, the world to know not only what really happened at Jeff Quiddick, but that Gargans were somebody too. How easy would it be to pull out box nine or box seven that has scrapbooks, but also has maybe the Joe Gargan tapes? Because to me, that's like the holy grail of, uh, of this...
0: Cover Up will return with a new episode July 12th. The show is a joint production by People Magazine and Cadence 13. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. To share your thoughts and theories on the case, you can join our Facebook group to continue the discussion. Just search CoverUp. For more, go to people.com slash coverup, or to reach us directly, email coverup at people.com.